Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Ryan Painter Podcast. Today, we sit down with Elena Lawson, an advocate for greater autism supports and funding in the province of BC. We talk about her most recent experience as a candidate running for the Lankford Juan de Fuca by-election for the BC United, and we talk about what it's like being a first-time candidate. Hello, everybody. Thank you so much for joining us today. It is the Ryan Painter Podcast, and you're here, and I am, I, I'm, I'm honestly just tickled pink. I love that you spend time listening to the podcast, to my musings, to my guests, and I hope that you are getting something out of it, and I hope that you're enjoying this time that we're spending together, and I really hope that you appreciate what I'm trying to bring you, uh, which really is just that honest and frank conversation between two friends, two people who may agree on some things, may disagree on other things, but at the end of the day, it really is about coming together and having conversations. And we just need so much more of that. And um, in the interview you're going to hear today with me and my very good friend, Elena Lawson, you're not going to hear a whole lot of disagreement on anything um, because I just think Elena's awesome. She's one of my very, very favorite people, and she is an absolute superhero. So listen to the podcast, um, listen to her, her reflections on politics, what it's like running for the very first time as a person who never considered running for politics before. Um, it is really important. And I think a good reminder of the reasons why we need to always be thoughtful about politics and think about who is running in politics and why they're running. What are their reasons for running? And I hope that you reflect on the conversation and the lessons that she took and think about them when you go to the ballot box, because it's important when you're voting to not just think about the fact that you're voting for a government or you're voting for the premier or you're voting for the prime minister. Think about who you're voting for to be your elected official, whether it's as an MP, an MLA, a city councillor, a school trustee, whoever it is, really take the time to think about it because you want to know who you're voting for and inevitably who's going to be there representing you. And in that vein, I was really quite amused um, when I saw a post from the leader of BC United, Kevin Falcon, uh, critiquing the lack of leadership coming from the BC NDP government here in BC because there's a transit strike that's happening. I think it's only for 24, 48 hours, um, but it's happening. It started today in downtown Vancouver. And it wasn't because Kevin Falcon was critical. It was the immediate pylon that he received from folks saying that he was anti-worker because he wants the transit workers to be an essential service in, in Vancouver. And the pylon was your anti-worker, you're going to back to work legislation and you're going to do all this stuff and you're going to take away workers' rights and like <laughs> talk about overblowing the situation because he did not say that. He did not say that at all. He said that transit workers should be an essential service. And, and I actually agree with him 100%. There's not much out there that I think should be an essential service. There really isn't. You know, 
Um, paramedics absolutely should be. Uh, firefighters absolutely should be. And I think, you know, uh, uh, people would argue that teachers should be an essential service. Um, you know, I think teachers play a really, really important role in our society, not just in teaching our kids, but ensuring that our education system is sound, is strong, uh, and, and they play a vital role in that. So I don't agree in teachers being an essential service, but I do think transit transit um, drivers should be an essential service. I think it's really, really, really important that those transit operators are getting people to and from work. And the irony is that people are criticizing him for saying that transit drivers should be an essential service because according to them, it's anti-worker to want to ensure that workers get to work. And just the, the logical flaw there doesn't connect for me. And it was really interesting to see Jody Vance. I don't know if you know who Jody Vance is. Um, Jody Vance is the co-host of Steel and Vance um, on, uh, on Czech media, uh, podcast host, correspondent, um, just a fantastic journalist. And Jody tweeted something very interesting this morning um, saying we are we have been told or we are told to get rid of our cars and that we should take transit, which is true. The prevailing narrative today, certainly by those on the left and who occupy left spaces in our government, shame us for driving vehicles uh, and say we should all be getting out of our vehicles and all take transit, take transit, take transit. Or if you live here in Victoria, because transit's not that available outside of the downtown core, um, bike everywhere. Just just bike. It doesn't matter if you have a 75 or 76-year-old mother-in-law or mother um, who maybe has mobility issues. Just everyone bike. Just bike, 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 bike. In this instance, she's com commenting on the fact that everyone's told to get out of their cars, get rid of their cars, and take transit. And then their public are being used as bargaining chips by unions and, and corporations, which is true because at this point, the it, it is a double-sided, two-sided sword, right? It's it's both sides. It's it's the union saying, well, you know, we're going to stop driving people around because people can't get to work. And then it's the corporation saying, you have to get people to work. And, and it just doesn't make sense. It, people who need to get to work, families need to get their kids to and from school or to and from uh, soccer practice or to and from piano lessons or different things. You need to go to doctor's appointments. Maybe you need to go to get chemotherapy. Like when you restrict the ability for people to move around, you're restricting the ability for them to do things that might be vital for them to stay alive. And you're using them as bargaining chips to, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to argue that perhaps things need to be done to get better compensation, better benefits, all of those things. But for goodness sakes, there's some stuff that just cannot be risked in the, the justification, the means of trying to achieve better wages, better salary. And that might be a horrible thing to say. But look, as someone who has watched three of his family members go through cancer, two of them die as a result of cancer, I can't imagine what it would be like if they had been uh, uh, subjected to a transit strike. And they had not been able to get their chemo. My dad probably would have died much sooner. Same thing with my grandmother. I mean, the cancer that my dad had was so aggressive. It killed him in nine months. His time with me and with my two stepsisters and my stepmom and his granddaughter would have been severely limited if he had to miss chemotherapy appointments or radiation appointments. His cancer was so aggressive. 
we don't know what people are facing out there. And so I think we have to have a really honest, serious discussion about what our priorities are today. And look, I am a union supporter, 110%. I support unions. I support the right to collectively bargain. I absolutely think it's vital to have unions involved to ensure that workers get representation. I have my, I myself have been a member in no fewer than five unions. I have been a shop steward. I have been a regional representative. I was a parliamentarian with QP. I have all kinds of experience within the union environment. And I have done grievance proceedings and all this kind of stuff. Like I know exactly what this is. I know what it is, but I also know that the world isn't black and white and it's not. And a lot of folks who are absolutely 100% on the, on one side of this or on the other side, you know, it's not, it's not just the people who are throwing mud at Kevin Falcon and saying he wants to, uh, you know, restrict collective bargaining. There are folks on the other side who absolutely would love to restrict the rights of unions to collectively bargain because it impacts their bottom line. And I know that, and we all know that. Not only that, but it impacts safety as well. Unions are there not just for wages and benefits and pensions and holidays and vacations and all of those important things, childcare, you name it. They're there for safety, right? Unions have a place, but there is a middle ground to all of this. And for me, it stops with jeopardizing the health and safety and the ability of our public to move around and get what they need to do done. And yes, it's a tactic. It absolutely is. Jody Vance is 100% right. The public, the traveling public is being used as bargaining chips by the unions and by the corporations. So making them an essential service eliminates that from being an issue. Then they're not used as bargaining chips anymore. People can move around where they need to move around. They can get to their appointments. They can go do whatever they need to do. They can drop kids off at school. They can do whatever they need to do. They can do it. You know, my 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 wife, when she was going to law school at Capilano University, she lived out in Deep Cove. And for those of you who are familiar with um, uh, North Vancouver, you'll know roughly where that is. I still kind of don't really know <laughs> North Vancouver that well. It's, it's interesting because there's North Vancouver and then I think West Vancouver is actually North Vancouver, but it's on the West. <laughs> it's all, it's all very weird. Um, but, uh, I think she lived in an area, um, it was Parkdale or, or something like that. I don't even remember. Anyways, she needed a bus to get from where she was to Capilano university. There's, she didn't have a vehicle. She was living, uh, in a suite, uh, while she was going to university there and she could not have not gotten to school if she didn't have a bus, nobody that she knew there, she wasn't from Vancouver. She was from the Okanagan. Nobody that she knew or went to school with had vehicles. Everyone used the bus. Everybody that she went to school with, I would say like 99% was using the bus with her. And so if the buses hadn't run, she wouldn't have been able to go to school. Now, sure, maybe classes would have been canceled, but the point is the domino effect would have been there. You know, she would have had classes delayed and probably would have delayed a report or probably would have delayed an assignment, which would have put more pressure on her needing to have those things done in advance of some kind of submission deadline or a exam. You know, yes, unions use these kinds of tactics because they know they work. When you disrupt the public, it pisses people off and the public will get mad at somebody. 
but I've always really seen these kinds of things as it's important to win the hearts and minds of folks. And if you lose the hearts and minds of people, you will absolutely lose the fight. People will not support you. I've seen it time and time again with all kinds of strikes. It happened with the liquor servers strike here a couple of years back. I think it was actually during COVID. And initially the support was there for them. But as it went on, people started getting more and more frustrated, right? And I understand, I understand. Look, I work with folks who make decent money, but I've also worked with folks who don't make very good money. And there's an argument out there that people who work in union jobs make really good money. They get make good money, great benefits, lots of support uh, from union hierarchy, shop stewards, all that kind of stuff, pensions, you name it. Uh, I know folks who work really, really hard in their chosen field and profession, and they don't get the kind of compensation, the benefits packages, the pension that folks in the union get. And you know what? Union folks have bargained for that. Good for them. But I think it just, it just takes a little bit of humility to appreciate where you're at and that other people are not quite there where you are. Um, well, maybe I'm being naive. Maybe I'm being naive, you know, unions have done well in the last few years. You know, I know in BC unions have organized way more than in previous and the United Food and Commercial Workers Union has done an amazing job pulling in um, food service workers and, and um, you know, DoorDash delivery, Uber drivers. So it's those kind of things. And I think it's fantastic. I, I love to see the increase in unionization. I think it's so important and I, it, 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 it's not, it's not quaint to say that when unions are able to bargain for better wages and better benefits, that generally the public sees a benefit to themselves. Unions have given us a lot in history. They really have pensions, health and safety, weekends, vacations. Unions have given us a lot. But I, I just think it's important for us to remember that when you interrupt the public, especially transit, you risk people's lives. It's what you're doing. It's what, it's what happens. You might not like the fact that that's what happens, but it's what happens. It might not eke out the result that you like. And when you lose the public, you, you've lost. You've just lost. Take it from me, someone who's certainly experienced blowback in his own professional and political career. You can't lose the public and think that you have a future in any kind of role in leadership. You can't. So it's important to keep reality in front of you. Make sure you don't have an echo chamber surrounding you because when you hear the same thing repeated back to you over and over again, you think that you're doing the right thing. It's really important that you get other perspectives in so that you know there's other people across the table who feel differently and they might actually be the majority. So that's my thoughts on the transit strike. I hope this doesn't go any longer. Like it, it absolutely shouldn't. I think um, Kevin Falcon, the leader of BC United, talked about this being the third time that this has happened in uh, in recent history of this BC NDP government. And it's not good. I mean, strikes are not good. Um, and I just really hope that for those living in downtown Vancouver, that nobody has been negatively impacted in terms of the health implications because that that to me is is the worst possible outcome 
when the desire to seek some kind of greater remediation, remuneration for your work results in harm to the public. It's a, it's a bad thing to have happen. I would not want that on my conscience. So I hope everyone's okay. And I hope everything gets ironed out. And I sincerely hope that this strike wraps up as quickly as it possibly can, because nobody should be affected by these kinds of things in downtown Vancouver or in any downtown situation or in any situation period where people rely on public transit. As I said at the top of this rant, this monologue, when we've been told to ditch our cars and use public transit, and then at the end of the day, as Jody Vance has said, we're used by bargaining as, as bargaining chips by unions or corporations. It's not fair. And the way to get rid of that is to make it an essential service. And that is something I support. My interview today is with Elena Lawson, one of my dearest friends. I was so happy that she was able to join me. Elena is an autism advocate. She's been advocating for greater funds for autism support and increased autism support. But not just that, you'll hear her fight against the provincial government when they brought in a new strategy around how to deliver autism funding, what that meant, and why Elena took that campaign and took it into running for a seat in the provincial legislature in a by-election that happened last summer. Seems like so much longer ago. She took it into her very first election campaign, never thinking she was going to run, but she did. Elena is a powerful speaker, a powerful motivator, a superhero in my eyes and in the eyes of many others. And I really hope you take something away from this because I think she has some important lessons to impart on how we individually can organize and work to make change, not only in our lives and in the lives of others, but in our society at large. So here's my interview with Elena Lawson. Elena, thank you so much for joining me. It's a real, real pleasure to have you here. And Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year. Thank you for having me. A, a very important question before we start. How long into a new year are you supposed to say Happy New Year? What's your rule? Oh, Je middle of January? I don't know. <laughs> Someone asked me that I yesterday. I thought about that. I know, right? Someone asked me that yesterday. They said, Ryan, how long do you... And I, I again, I hadn't thought about it either until someone asked me yesterday. And I thought, I, I usually stop saying Happy New Year when I've run through a Happy New Year with the people who I talk to the most frequently, uh, kind of in the first two, three weeks of the new year. But it turns like I'm still hitting people who I haven't talked to. People are either coming off of vacations or something. And so I'm still saying, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. <laughs> Even though it's... So am I. You know, you know. But there's like, there's no real rule there like we could even say it into march or or do you think that that's too late can you though <laughs> <laughs> i want to be well into the new year by march come on spring weather <laughs> yeah well certainly here i mean we've we're expecting um uh, a huge dump of snow from what i've seen in the forecast in the next few days are you uh are you guys pre prepped for that the the dump of 2024 that's supposed to just blanket the island? Uh, partially. I think uh, we still need to get a generator. We always forget until it actually happens. I think my biggest hurdle right now is is realizing that I think uh, William has outgrown his snow pants. And oh. I'm not going to find snow pants anywhere anymore. <laughs> 
maybe maybe dad's got some hand-me-downs <laughs> maybe maybe <laughs> really roll those pant those pant legs up real high <laughs> yeah I agree um so look I really really appreciate you joining there's there's so much that we can talk about but I think what I want to hit on first um you know we're what are we we're almost I guess about a year and a half uh technically from when you ran for the by-election in uh, mm-hmm. Langford, Wantafuca, although I think it's now it's now Langford Highlands. Is that the new riding name? Yeah, so there's Langford Highlands and then uh, Malahat, Wantafuca. So they got split into two ridings. That's 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 crazy. So um, more more fun for us here on the South Island come election time. What um, what are your reflections on that time for you? Um, a year and a half out from the election. I guess b- before we do that, actually, before we do that, what made you decide to run? I think that's a really interesting question. Like we can get into the reflections a year and a half later, but what made you decide to run? It's a, it's quite a thing stepping up to run for elected office. Not a lot of people do it. And so why did you do it? Well, I, I said this during the campaign too, I was never a political person. Um, I never even thought in my wildest dreams I would ever run in any sort of election. Uh, but when when the government tried to take away the individual autism funding and move into these family connection centers, uh, it really pushed me forward. And I was in a fight mode for a year and a half, you know, for that advocacy and with, with thousands of other parents and families. And uh, I think I was just like, you know what, if I can't change it from the outside, I'm going to go in and change it. And that was always my outlook on it. it. It was never, I was not a career politician. I was not in it for my name and lights, as some people have said, you know, I, I was in it to make a difference for um, our children. People definitely come to, to politics for a variety of different reasons. I, I came to, to my own run a lot of kind of that, that the mental health focus for me and and supporting uh, supporting students as best we can. And you definitely came from it with this this kind of similar perspective of we have to change the system. What was happening up to that point? Can you go into a little bit of detail? Because you, you did get very involved in mm-hmm. activism for these changes that were happening to autism funding. Do you want to kind of give us a bit of background? Like what, what made you jump into that activism before you decided to run for politics? Yeah. So in October of 2021, I, myself and thousands of other families received a letter from the minister of children and families development saying that they were going to sunset individual autism funding um, and move into these family connection centers, which would mean, you know, the choice of the parents were now gone. Like we had no choice. Uh, we would be forced into these family connection centers for our children to receive their services. So individual funding, there's there's a lot of people have their different thoughts on it, and that's okay. But for specifically my family, and, and I think almost every other family I've spoken to, individual funding has worked for them. Um, we get to pick our own service providers. We get to build a team. Uh, when you look at autism, there's there's trust and relationships that need to be built. And these family connection centers weren't going to meet that. Um, also, in my case, I was told by three different service providers that William wouldn't have been able to even get into a family connection center because he, uh, some people don't like this term, but he's high functioning. Mm. Right. He can speak. Mm. He can go to public school. He has friends. He's very social. But this is also because we have really since the age of three, 
like even before he was diagnosed, we paid privately for speech. We, we really worked on all of this stuff to, to um, make, ensure that he was successful and, and being able to function in society and be able to be out in the community. And, you know, there, there's still daily struggles that we have every day, but um, individual funding gives us that opportunity to um, ensure that he's getting what he needs. Um, I'm not fully against family connection centers. I get that some families don't have uh, the ability or, or want to be their child's case managers. I get that. I think there is a purpose, but I don't think just slashing one thing, eliminating one thing and moving to a, a framework that was going to negatively affect thousands of families throughout BC was the right answer. Like there was no consultation with the autism community. Um, everyone was blindsided by this change and we did people did rough math and you know we were looking at 80,000 plus kids coming into this needs-based model and we don't even have enough service providers now hmm. Hmm. So, so it there was just there was so many red flags right away so i just i met a whole bunch of wonderful people and we we just fought against it for a year and a half and what was the outcome of of all that fighting elena yeah, so uh, the premier paused the project um, just over a year ago now. It's just, it's I can't believe it. Everything's been such a blur with what's been happening. But uh, he paused the project. So there's four pilot family connection centers still moving forward. Um, individual fun funding, excuse me, he says will stay. So that is a bonus. That's just something that we will keep him accountable for. He did say it will stay. Um, I am concerned with this um the next election coming up this year um, once the election's over if they are successful again that they may try to eliminate it again why the rush to eliminate something that clearly uh as you've articulated so many families and parents see allows them some freedom of choice to determine a uh, I, I guess a, a a way to put services together for that work for them and for their kids. It, it's almost like you have the ability to design exactly what's going to work. Now, I, I admit I'm very ignorant into in terms of how um, how how parents navigate the kids with autism and and services and stuff in B, in BC. I, I can't imagine it's it's mm -hmm. remotely an easy thing to do. Um, but I can I can imagine that parents having the option to kind of pick and choose different services or different ways to support their kids. Every kid is different. I'm sure every child with autism is even more different than, um, than, than, than average. Why then the rush to provide a blanket solution, a one size fits all solution to children and families who are so diverse and so different. Some families of which, two kids are autistic or three kids are autistic within a family, not just one. Mm -hmm. And they're all different. And, and you, you're right there. So I have always said, you've met one autistic child, you've met one, mm -hmm. you know, they're all different. Their needs are different. You can't like this, the one size fits all approach doesn't work. Now, looking at it from the minister's lens, you know, there's, there are other disability groups currently that get nothing. And that's not okay either. You mm. know, you, you dyslexia, Down syndrome, fetal alcohol syndrome, mm. you name it, they don't get any supports. They don't get this individualized funding. Mm. But what I always said, and both like 
both Cassandra, who's the co-founder of uh, Children's Autism Federation of BC with myself, we spoke to the, the budget committee at the parliament buildings and we've said, why not a hybrid? Why not expand individualized funding to all of the groups? Mm-hmm. You know, why, why slash, why take away from one and then, and then just build this, this center? Like, why are we just, this system works for most. So why don't we expand on the current system and, and offer it to the other disability groups as well? It seems like if you, if you would be, if their idea is, well, we have these other segments of the population that have clearly unmet needs. So mm-hmm. we're going to slash this one program to make it more efficient. Isn't the assumption there then that you're saving money so less kids and families will be supported? Like, isn't that just the assumption going into building a program like that? Yeah, and I've always thought that um, it, it, it is all about saving money. It's not, it's not about the children. I think it is just about saving dollars in their eyes. Um, I think they saw that there would be a lot of families that um, maybe possibly could just put their hands up in frustration and go, you know what? I don't care. I'm not dealing with this. I'll pay privately. Or, or there's going to be kids that will fall through the cracks even further because of this, because they can't get services. The wait lists are going to be long. Like my, my thought too, and I spoke to tons of people about this is they're, they're dumping millions of dollars into these family connection centers when they could have helped um, numerous tons of families in the other disability communities with individualized funding instead of the million dollars going into these family connection centers. They also should be focusing their money on um, bringing down the wait list. We have mm. a two-year-plus wait list for diagnosis for autism. Mm. And even private, you pay, I think, $3,500 or something, and there's still a wait list for that. So, what, What's an autism diagnosis like? Like, Can you tell us the process mm-hmm. of, what that go, of, of how, you, how a parent moves through that? Because I imagine most people have no idea. Yeah, it... <laughs> So it's a bit of a blur. It was in 2018. I was pregnant with Marcus at the time. Um, But we waited, I think we only waited about eight months for ours. So it was our daycare provider and our allergist that saw the signs. Mm. Um, William was born premature. And so we were told that this could be something that came up. So we were put into um, the early intervention program. And then we waited for our time slot to go um, for William to be assessed. And it was a two part um, assessment. So I'm not sure if it's changed now, but before Mm. it was, he would go in and he would um, conduct, he would do um, tasks and they would, it was all notebook. Mm. And then, um, then we saw uh, uh, the psychologist, psychiatrist, sorry. And then um, it was a two day from what I remember. Sorry. I know this is sounding kind of all over the place, but it was a two, it was a two-day um, assessment, which was extremely emotionally draining mm. for everyone involved, including William. Mm. Um, it, it was, you just, you sat, like I cried after the assessment. I didn't know what to think. It was all new to me. I had no idea what autism was or what it entailed. Um, and it just was kind of thrown at you. And then once you're assessed, you know, you're, you're um, discharged from the early prevention, uh, early intervention program, sorry, apologies. And um, you're need to find your own service providers. So it is navigating a maze. And I get that. But I think 
you know, I help families too. Like I have people call me all the time and ask me what steps they need to take or who they should reach out to. And I just, I help them. And I think there just needs to be more resources like that. It sounds like you went into the early intervention program. They kind of went through some things to help determine whether or not William was autistic and, and uh, possibly to, to what degree or, or, or something. And then they just kind of dumped you out into the system and left you on your own. Did, did nobody provide you with any kind of counseling support or um, anything like that to kind of, cause as, as a parent, this is a challenging thing to navigate because like you said, you didn't know what autism was and parents don't know generally how to, how to manage uh, things like that with their kids. And I can imagine the guilt to try to navigate that, to think that I can't do enough for, for my kid is probably very difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. So during the early intervention program, before his assessment, we did have counseling. Um, uh, my husband and I did. Um, but after that, you get assigned a social worker. But I've heard from families that never get assigned a social worker. Wow. You know, they've, they've had their child diagnosed for two years, and they've never spoken to a social worker. And, and I talk to them and I say, Okay, well, how about I'll give you a phone number, you need to get in touch, right. because, you yeah. know, back then they give you a package and it was like, okay, this is what you need to do. This is how you, um, you go into the portal. Like it was just this thick, thick binder of, of everything and all the steps that you had to take, but you're pretty, you are on your own. And, and I think that is also why the minister, there's been some complaints on that. And I think that's also why the minister wanted this one stop shop. Um, but I, I believe it could have been built differently. But I think you said at the outset that there it, it's difficult finding you know you're you're on a two year wait list. I'm sure a lot of that mm -hmm. has to do with the lack of availability of assessors. Um, mm -hmm. We know that there's a doctor shortage. I can't imagine that that wait list is going to be any easier to tackle if you're suddenly putting in a system whereby you're slashing the access to people and now people have to go to a private care system. Um, I just I I wonder what in your mind is the solution so we have you know I know you said a hybrid model is that the way you think we should be going some kind of hybrid model to have these care centers for folks who really urgently need it and then another model of individual funding where that's maintained I mean I'm sure that you guys have thought thought through this. Yeah, so so for me, so the family connection centers right now are, are based are needs based. So there's no diagnosis required in order to go to them. Mm. Um, and and that's the other concerning piece is my worry is parents, if they're getting the help for their kids, they're not going to go through that that um, stress of a diagnosis necessarily, right? And if, if parents don't go through that process and get the diagnosis, then they don't get the, you know, the mm -hmm. disability tax mm -hmm. credit and the savings accounts and the supports within the school system. So mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. I said, there was a lot of gaps within this project that I, I really didn't like. Um, I think a hybrid, giving the parents a choice, and that was always um, my thing and a lot of parents pushing against this change was give parents a choice if they want to retain their individualized funding let them if they don't want to be their child's case manager and feel that they would be better suited within a family connection center then let them do that hmm. but so, i do so think providing that, that choice providing that freedom that that flexibility it's not one or the other absolutely. it's what 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 the family needs Exactly. Like work with what works best for the family, not what works best for the government. Oh, I like that. That, I mean, that should be, you think that would be a good slogan for anyone to get behind. It's what works for the family, not what works best for the government. Although mm -hmm. 
I, I wish, and I, I hate to sound cynical here, but I wonder if in your, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong, in your experience, do you think issues like this, where we have children in, uh, in need with diverse needs and neurodiversities, do you think they get the kind of attention that they should? And it, like, it, I'd hate to say sexy issues, but is this a sexy issue that people are galvanized by that they talk about? Or is this something that it's really hard to kind of ratchet up the attention and get people paying attention and saying like how problematic and challenging these things are? Well, I think you can put that lens on anything, right? Unless it mm. directly affects you, people don't care. Um, and that's kind of what I found throughout the advocacy is people like I, I think online was the worst. And even through the by-election, um, mm -hmm. people online were very mean. Um, but it was just like, oh, your son has a silver spoon in his mouth. They've got <sighs> the gold. Autism has the golden ticket. And that's what we heard a lot. And I said, live a day in my shoes and please tell me say. if I have the golden ticket. Wow. Yeah. But people do. They don't care. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate. It really is unfortunate because, um, it's, it's not easy. I wouldn't change William for the world, but it's, it's a struggle. Every day is different and it's same with a, any child, right. But you just have that extra layer of, of things to try to, uh, you know, tackle. And it's not, it's not easy all the time. I've met William and he's an absolute, you've done an amazing job. He's an absolutely lovely, lovely child. So you, Thanks, you should Ryan. be very, very proud of, of the tremendous work that I know you and your partner have done to get him to this point. Uh, parents of kids who have neurodiverse and diverse needs are champions, um, really. And I think they should be uplifted and upheld a lot more often than we do. Um, mm -hmm. I want to pivot to the by-election. Uh, now, mm -hmm. so we've kind of we're following a bit of a progression here. So we're uh, <laughs> yes. activism, uh, activism, autism funding, advocate, loud speaking. Sounds like in November of twenty five, you actually did get kind of a uh, a bit of a shift. Um, and yep. then we've and then we've got the by election, which happened uh, in the um, summer of this year or last year, right? We're last year, yeah. Um, so so tell me what what or what are your thoughts about about that and and how do you feel coming out of that i think i said a year and a half after but it's only been six six seven months wow time oh has it only been yeah um i it was a great experience i'm grateful for it um i didn't know really how exhausted i was until i think two days after mm. and i hit a wall and i think i just slept and just <laughs> i took an extra week off of work and I just kind of came down from it all, reconnected with my kids. It was really hard on them as well. Mm. You know, like I was not around. I was on the, I was at the doors. I was at events. I was, you know, doing interviews. I was all over the place and, and I loved it. The, the um, personable approach, like just having those conversations, even those one-on-one -on -one conversations at the doors, I loved. It was so grateful. Like I was so grateful to connect with everybody. Um, of course, I think I was announced May 10th and then the by-election was June 24th. So mm -hmm. I really didn't have a lot of, um, a lot of time because this was a massive riding. Yeah. And so I didn't get to see everybody I wanted. Um, it, Did you it spend was most tough. of your time in, in Langford where you just kind of concentrated there? Did you manage to make it out to like Souk and some of the other regions? Yeah. So I was in Langford, um, Souk, Highlands. Um, I wasn't able to get up to Port Renfrew. But um, 
it was a big, Langford is a big area. I'm not going to mm. lie. This was a very, very big riding. And uh, to cover that in a month was, uh, you couldn't. <laughs> it's a, but I'm, sure, <laughs> I'm sure you had some enthusiastic people helping you out though. It's always uh, around campaign time. It's amazing. The people who kind of come out to be your bulwark of support. And, and that's, that, that had to be encouraging to see people who were kind of rallying behind you and, and fighting the good fight. It was. And it was amazing. I had people come from Vancouver and wow. uh, Allie, you know, Allie Blades, who was on your on your podcast oh, before. Allie was she out came, with you. That's nice. Yeah, she came out and, uh, you know, some great friends that I've met. And they I had I had great support from my friends and family as well. And um, yeah, it was good. What was what was I mean, you talked about uh, how difficult it was uh, kind of from a family perspective. Um, but I wonder if you can, um, go a little deeper on kind of the challenges that you had from a political space. So, you know, you said you're not a politician, you're, you've not really done anything like this before, except for your autism advocacy. What was it like for you now stepping into the role of, I want to be a politician. I want to represent the writing. What was challenging about that for you? I think it was, um, people actually, taking me seriously, you know, or I'm not just a one issue candidate. I was called mm. that. Mm. Um, yeah, I was called that a couple times. But you know, I was going up against somebody who has been in the public sphere for a very, very long time. And, mm. and he built he's built his profile up. And, and, you know, I knew going up against Ravi, you know, the chances were slim, but I really just wanted to put my name out there and also show uh, women that we can do this, you know, like yeah. women in politics is a big thing right now. Um, I, it, I was thinking about this before we came on the call and I was thinking about all the people, all the hate I got online and, and the things I had to deal with. And I'm thinking, you know, this is, this is what deters women from coming into politics. You know, people went after my body image, people went after my children, people went after anything they could. And what the fuck is wrong with people? I'm sorry. I just, I, I don't like it's 2023 for crying out loud. Why do we, why do 2024, we, 2024, Ryan, or 2024? <laughs> you know what? I've, I've done this already. I've done the 2023 thing. Thank you. So, so like, how do you manage that? Um, you know, the, the autism advocacy gave me thick skin. Mm. I remember um, Kevin Falcon before I ran, he's like, whatever you do, Lena, don't look at the comments. And, you know, when I decide to do this again, I will listen to him. I did not listen to him last time. And I looked at them and I would get angry. And I just, I just spent, I just kind of would disconnect and, and take that little bit of time that I had instead of reading those silly comments and mm. just sit with my kids and my family and know that none of that really matters. I think it's a good rule for life. Just don't look at the comments, just, you know, do your you thing, the thing that inspires you and that gives you energy. And, and I love that you, you know, to kind of go back and get that, uh, that renewed strength. It meant, it meant going back to your kids. Do you, uh, and your family, do you think you would run again after this experience? Is it something that you you want to try again at some point in the future or has it completely deterred you from doing it ever again uh when the time's right you know um i'm not deterred from it i mm. think um i'll see where my path takes me i'm not i'm not saying no but i'm not saying right now what um 
what lessons do you have? And I'm specifically, I mean, you talk about women in politics, and I think it's always important to put lessons learned in, in, in a frame. So what, what lessons did you learn that you think other politicians and, and particularly uh, uh, female politicians um, that they can, they can imp- uh, you can impart on them if they're considering running? Mm-hmm. Um, don't listen, don't read the comments. There's the, there's number one, um, you know, just trust yourself and trust your instincts. Um, you know, be powerful. Don't be afraid. I think, I think that was the one thing I learned throughout this election as I was really afraid to say something wrong. And, mm. you know, I'm not a scripted person. If I'm scripted, I fall on my face. Uh, you know it's true I'm the same way I'm the to, same way I can't I can't run through yeah. with this with the script I can't I can't be a script I need to be authentic and you know I think next time when if and when the time comes I'm just going to say it as it is and you know if I piss some people off well I guess I do you know and and don't be afraid to speak up for what's right but that's what made Horgan so effective you know your your former uh MLA is that he he wasn't a scripted person. He was an off the cuff, uh, you know, off the cuff kind of guy wearing his jeans and his, his boots. And he, he just was who he was. He wasn't afraid to be who he was. I think that's why he connected with people so well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I remember um, I was at a fundraiser, I think it was in 2014 or 2015 um, with John for the former MLA that I used to work for Gary Holman. And, um, he pulled me aside as he was leaving and he said, cause I think he had just become leader. Um, and he said, you know, my handlers are telling me that I'm, uh, I'm, I'm too myself. I'm going too off script. Uh, and I'm having trouble. Uh, they're, they're telling me to stay on script and that I should be more like that. Um, and I told him, I said, uh, ignore them. Uh, because the person that you are is the person people are going to like. Um, it is the person people will gravitate to. When people try to fake it, uh, it's really obvious. A great example is Tom Mulcair. Now, um, you know, he people got to know him as the guy uh, who was across from Stephen Harper and, and you know, the, the prosecutor and the, the, the leader of the opposition who was really forceful and, and, um, he did great during the campaign. It felt like he was putting on a fake smile all the time. And it, maybe that was him. Maybe it wasn't, but it, there was something about it that just, it came across as fake and people felt it. And I heard it when I was on the doorstep in 2015, people said, why does Tom Mulcair look and feel so fake? And I think he was getting bad advice from his handlers to, to smile more. Um, I wrote an article for Huffington post back in, I think 2013 or 2014 and it was it was kind of taking from uh you remember remember the uh the hulk uh, uh show that was on um with lou ferrigno when he was the hulk back in the day um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. uh and uh you know the the you won't like me when i'm angry that kind of thing well i i i changed it to tom mulcair you might like him when he's angry and it was <laughs> very much saying that the the environment that we were in at the time was one where a politician could actually harness anger because there was a lot of anger in 2014, 2015, around that time period. Um, People wanted to see their leaders standing up, showing a bit more emotion, being a bit more authentic. And that was my argument at the time. And I, I think, uh, I think he would have been more successful if he had taken my advice. Um, But um, 
anyways, it's a bit of it's a bit of a tangent. I mean, we think about authentic. Did you find it easy to be authentic, or was it was it difficult? Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, it was it was easy to be authentic. I think um, it was just knowing what questions were going to be thrown at me, right? Because you never knew what was coming, and you know, I believe I was most authentic just at the doors. You know, mm. it was this organic conversation that came up. Um, I definitely, you know, my husband's like, oh, you have resting bitch face when you're on the news, right? So I had to like try to work on my face. That's that's helpful. I'll own it. I'll own it. But uh, it's just um it, it was there were certain parts it was just hard to know, you know, I what to say and and maybe my if I was caught off guard, it didn't come out as well, or I was, I got flustered. Like, like I said, this is the first time I've mm. ever done anything like this. And you're under a microscope, yes. like, yeah. you know, and, and it's just like, I'm just, I'm just Elena Lawson, like yeah, the girl that grew up in a squamalt. Like this is, yeah. you know, I'm just me. I'm not, I haven't been doing this my whole life. No, um, you, end, you end up but, needing to almost put together a fake persona. And part of that is to put out to the public, but part of it is also to kind of protect yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and, and also too, it's like we had that, you know, we had comments made online about our kids and it was just like, you know, uh, that's, that's not a, a anything that anyone should touch. And so I kind of, you know, I had to be very careful with how much I included them and like, you look at my Twitter and there's not a lot of the kids, right? Like, and then mm. I keep my Facebook and my Instagram completely locked down. Like it's, it's not open. Yeah. Um, and it's for that reason. Mm. It's to protect the kids. It's hard to think that we're in a place in politics. I wonder if it's always been like this. I don't think it has where it's okay to attack the the kids of, of, of politicians. Um, that just seems so wrong. Like what, what, what goes on in someone's head when they decide that that's okay? Are they just angry? Or are they just disturbed? There's no consequence. There's no yeah. consequence anymore for them. Right. And, and I think like social media and the internet has, has grown so much since like back in the day when, when we didn't have it and like mm. cell phones and all, and like smartphones and, and you look at that and now someone could be in their mom's basement and you know and be this keyboard warrior with this anonymous account and nobody knows who it is like um I was before I ran through the advocacy someone said I was like some middle-aged white privileged woman who's married to a liberal MLA and I'm just like what, what? like <laughs> It was They've just not like, done okay. their research, Elena. They've not. They done have not googled me to figure <laughs> out who I was. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I, I get. I really, really, really get tired of this privilege label being thrown around. Um, mm -hmm. There's this, this, this. I mean, it's the identity politics stuff, right? Like, if you're, but, but it's not just that. I, I made a comment on this on my last podcast. Um, we've come to a place where the left really only sees things in a binary oppressed and oppressor. That's it. And that doesn't make for a good policy. It doesn't make for a good society, but it just doesn't make for good people. When all you see is a group who is oppressed and a group who is the oppressor, we're so much different than that. And just because you're white 
doesn't mean you're privileged. Just because you're white doesn't mean you have all the benefits in the world that other people don't. It, it's just such a lazy label to use. Um, you know, I'm not, I mean, I'm certainly very lucky, but I didn't grow up in a privileged place as a white kid with a cleft lip and palate who had a lisp and a speech impediment and was bullied in school um, and uh, did not read at the level, at the grade level that he was at for years. Um, you know, things were not easy for me growing up. Um, things are better now, but that's because I worked really hard to get where I'm at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's the same. I didn't come from, from a wealthy home and, and I've worked for everything that I have, you know, I had two jobs by the time I was 16. Mm -hmm. I moved out when what, I was what 17. They? What were the jobs, Elena? Let's go back to 16 year old oh. Elena. What were you doing? Uh, Domino's Pizza and McDonald's. Ah, they were back before we had uh, 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 skip the dishes and DoorDash. Exactly. Yes. So I I worked both those jobs. Yeah. And I was out on my own the minute I graduated. When I was 17, I moved out. There, You just couldn't wait, could you? You just wanted to get out no. there and do your thing. I did. Yeah. Yeah. And it's taken me to where I am now. <laughs> well, and that's, and that's remarkable, right? Like you... I had a I had a deal with my with my parents growing up. They said if you go to university, you can live rent free while you're in university. And I was like, great deal. So I, yep. I took advantage of that. So I went to uh, I went to UBC Okanagan where I met where I met my wife, and she had a similar deal um, with her mom. And then we both graduated and we went went to Asia and kind of found our our own lives from there. So it's 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 nice when you kind of have that that buffer of support but you just were like nope I'm going out I'm on my own and let's just tackle life as it comes that's that's pretty gutsy yeah yeah it was but I I wouldn't change it it all happened for a reason and what so what are you doing now I mean we've come through all of this this politics and now we're into 2024 24 yes. um, what, what do you find yourself doing now Oh, I'm, I'm busy and I love it. So um, I got my real estate license actually before I ran for office. Right. So I do have that. And I've also accepted a position as campaign manager for Camp Shawnigan with Easter Seals. Very and cool. that has been an amazing opportunity. I'm very grateful for it. I get to work with amazing people and just the organization's amazing. You know, it's wonderful. It's an amazing camp. Yeah. How do you, so getting into real estate at a time like this seems like a, an interesting play, Elena, I have to say, um, <laughs> you know, with interest rates where they're at and, you know, we know that there's a supply shortage. So what made mm -hmm. you decide to go into real estate and, and how, how are you finding it? Is it, is it, is it all it's cracked up to be? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I used to be, um, I worked on the Oswego Victoria development back in the day. Um, ah, I yeah, worked down at yeah. village. I know that development. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I worked there and then I also had been with Remax Camosin, different places like that as conveyancers, communication managers. So real estate was always in my realm. Mm. Um, and then it, it was an interesting reason to get back into it as an agent. So when the autism advocacy uh, started, I worked for the provincial government. And to me, it was, I've, I was with them for 12 years. And I think I just came to a point of being 
I just couldn't work there anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I needed something different. I didn't agree with this change, obviously. And I, and I needed to change my life. So mm-hmm. um, I got my license. It's great. It's fun. Show, you know, I get to help people find their homes or, or, or help them sell it. Um, I, it's great. I, I just love people. I want to be around people. And it also opens it up where, so I left government in September, last September. Right. Like I said, after almost 12 years. And I got to watch Williams track meet. Oh, that's wonderful. So I think to be able to have the flexibility and the time and, you know, be your own boss was really, really important to me. And, and having that availability for the kids. And now you're, you're, you're a realtor. So do you have a, do you have a realtor voice when people come and you show people homes or are you, are you again, just your kind of authentic self? You're not putting on an act or a performance. You're just being you. There is no act. (laughs) You get what you see. (laughs) (laughs) What's that like to show someone around a place? Like what's the experience like? Are you, uh, do you kind of judge what you're saying based on what the person's looking for? Is it, um, are you really trying to to help them understand how it's the right place for them? Or are you kind of working off of their, uh, I guess, their emotions, their vibes? Yeah. So it's all based on, on their needs and wants, right? So usually I like to sit down with them before and, and, and say, what's your ideal home and what are you looking for? And, you know, and I won't show them a place that won't fit what they're looking at or what, what they really want. Um, I, it's all about them. You know, it's finding them what their dream home or their perfect home. Or again, you know, sometimes you have people that have their kids have left and they want to downsize. But it's having that um, connection to know how hard it is to let something like that go. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, having a home that your family was raised in and then, OK, you've decided it's time to downsize. But, you know, going at their pace. I'm not a pushy person. Um, it's all about their pace. Hmm. Hmm. And have you, have you found that it's, uh, it's something that you've slid into and it's, I mean, you said it's going well, but have you, Mm -hmm. uh, have you had any kind of rocky places where it's been a little bit tough or has it just, I mean, it's only been six or ish months, but I'm assuming Mm -hmm. you're, uh, you found your fit pretty comfortably. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's going well. Of course there's rocky spots, you know, the, the market I think is just about to pick up again. And like you said, the interest rates that scared a lot of people. So having the discussion and also having, you know, a great network of people that I know um, mortgage brokers and lawyers and stuff that can guide them through the process as well. Cause it's not just, Oh, you buy a house and you're done. You know, you've got your costs with closings. You've got to finance it. You've got to understand the risks of the mortgage rates. And so I have all these key people working with me and, and, uh, it just makes it seamless for them. I hope it makes it seamless for them. I have no doubt that you're an ideal person to help someone find their, either find their, their first and or forever home. I know people use that term forever home. I'm not sure if that's a term that, that, that you've, that you've used. Um, I wonder if that's even something that's, that's okay. Like maybe it's not their forever home. (laughs) No, and that's okay if it's not, right. you know, maybe it's just like a stepping stone to get something else down the road. It just gets you into the market, right? So, um, and again, it's based on what they need mm-hmm. and you, their family's needs. 
Do I remember? Do I, did I even remember you saying that you were you were born in Esquimalt? Is that right? Yes, I was born and raised in Esquimalt. Wow. And so you've been in the region here your your whole life. What uh, what's the biggest change that you've seen? Because I wasn't. I'm not from here. I've only been here for ten years. I came from the Okanagan originally. So I mean, what do you think are the biggest changes that you've seen here since since you were born? I would say growth. Mm. Um, you know, we used to be this tiny, well, not tiny, we were never tiny, but you know, it didn't have the growth that it has now. I'm not against growth. I think we need it. And it's, it's a great thing if it's done properly. Mm. Um, you know, I look at a Squimalt and, um, it has changed, you know, when I grew up in a Squimalt, people would be like, Oh, you're from a Squimalt, <laughs> you know? And yeah, I and understand that it kind of had this weird reputation as kind of like a I don't want to call it a backwater, but, you know, kind of a, a very blue collar. Rough around the edges. Rough around the you edges know, like, neighborhood. Yeah. It, yeah. But I don't re ever remember it being that way. And, hmm. you know, I grew up a portion of my life. I lived with my grandparents in an apartment behind the Carlton club, you know, so oh, it's wow. not. And that was probably what some people would say was probably the roughest area. Well, guess hmm. what? I walked down to Domino's at 10 o'clock at night and I was fine. Right. Um, so I think there was just that that image of Esquimalt being rough. Um, but my my husband and I laugh because he's from Oak Bay. And, and we go, <laughs> how did an Oak Bay boy end up with an Esquimalt girl? But um, <laughs> we chuckle about that. But it, I think it's the growth um, that's changed the most. But we, I love it. I, I don't think I'll ever leave. I do love Vancouver. Um, I've always had a soft spot for Vancouver. Why is that? But what I is don't it about know. Vancouver that you like so much? Oh, I don't know. Um, I, maybe it's just the city life. I, I mm. like the city life, even though I'm in the country now, but I mm. do, I do enjoy it. Um, I think everything's just central, right? Like you don't have to take a ferry to get somewhere. <laughs> you can drive into the States. You don't have to take a ferry or fly, you yeah. know? So I think, I think there's, it's that. I, when I go there, I just feel at peace and I feel at home, which I, it sounds really odd. And maybe one day I'll end up over in Vancouver. Mm. Um, but I've never left the island. So well, I ask because I feel, I feel the same way when I go to Vancouver. Um, and I think it's also because I'm from the interior from a small town, about 30,000 people um, that when I go to Vancouver, I, I really, something that I just enjoy about it. Like it just feels this is going to sound weird, but it feels special. There's a specialness mm -hmm. about it. And I think Vancouver is such a unique city because it's this very urbanized city, but it's just surrounded by beauty everywhere you look. Like they've, it yeah. has managed to retain this just really unique charm and character um, that I, I think is almost unparalleled if, you, if you're going to any other um, similar city like it. Um, um, certainly around here in North America and certainly in Canada. My, um, my wife went to um, law school at, uh, at Kaplan University in North Van, and she loved living up there when she was there for, uh, for, for a couple of years. Um, and uh, coming, to, coming to Victoria, um, it's, it's been a little bit different. I, I will say, and you may or may not know this, I feel that the area here is very clicky. Um, oh, yeah. For ten years, it's it has been very difficult to find an in group. <laughs> that is definitely something about the island that has been said since I was a kid. 
So if you weren't born and raised here, so if you were new to the neighborhood, it was hard to find friends. It was hard to get into the circles because everyone is really clicky here. Well, everyone who I've met uh, as an adult coming here is like went to went to the same high school or similar high school <laughs> and went to UVic together and worked together. And it's just it you come in, it's like, hey, I'm new. I want to do something with you. And it's just like, no, <laughs> it's just like you're you're not you're not. Someone once told me that it takes about seven years to feel like you've established yourself in Victoria and so another person said the same thing similar but they said it takes seven years to make a real friend in Victoria and I was like oh wow <laughs> wow but yeah. I, I will tell you I don't think that that's wrong um so my my seven years would have been about 2021 2022 just around COVID time um no wait because I'm 10 years this year so three years back so yeah about 2019 and um it was uh, it was till about then that I actually kind of felt more established and that I'd gained some some good friendships. Um, although I'll say that some of the circumstances of my own political world have resulted in me um, losing quite a few friendships, which is which is mm -hmm. a bizarre thing. I mean, that's where politics is so weird. Um, you know, you 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 spend such a long time developing these associations, things that certainly feel like friendships but they end up only really being transactional. And so when you do something that, or, or have an opinion or express something that's a little bit offside, if, um, you know, if you're not brought to heel, which happens in politics, um, then you're kind of pushed out. So when I managed Stephen Andrews campaign for mayor of Victoria in 2022, um, I was ostracized by all of kind of the NDP elite in in the region despite the fact that he's an ndp member um or he at least he was at the time i don't know if he's still now and um you know it was an ndp aligned mayor versus an ndp aligned mayor but because it was with one and not the other i was you know i was pushed out and that's a weird thing to just suddenly lose an entire segment of your friend group in a span of like a couple months mm-hmm so I'm really, I, a lot of my friends I've had, so I have a group of five girls and we've been friends for 30 years, I think. Wow. And yeah. And we're, uh, we, like, we have a group chat and it's squad goals, you know, like we, we are squad tight. Goals, I we, love that. We, yeah, yeah. It's the six of us. We are tight. We're sisters. And, um, when I decided to run, you know, they all came behind me. They all rallied behind me. And our, like, our political views are different in a lot of cases. But they're like, Elena, we support you. We're so happy you're doing this. Like, we are 100% behind you. What a concept that you can actually have friends of different political persuasions who can kind of put the politics aside and support you because of who you are. Because of, like, that should be the way we do things. But we're so polarized. We're so yep. polarized. Uh, it like it's it, it you mentioned online and on social media but you know i i i go out sometimes and i'll be having a coffee with someone and you overhear conversations and uh you hear the way people talk about um about trudeau sometimes and you know i understand people have uh uh their their dissatisfaction with him i mean he's been in power since 2015 he's you know he's been prime minister for a long time he's probably hit his 
best before date. Um, yeah. Certainly, uh, certainly the um, uh, uh, if the polls are any indication, he's <laughs> he's at his best before date. But the way some people talk about him, it's it's like I don't know. Like I find it shocking. I would never talk about that to my worst enemy. But because he's who he is, and because we're so polarized these days. Uh, I don't know, the language seems to have taken on a completely different tone. And I think people keep forgetting that people are human. Mm, you know, that's such a good point. They, they, they could be prime minister, they could be premier, they could be an MLA, they could be city councillor, whatever it is, they're still a person, you know. Um, and I think politicians are just labeled one way. And if you're a politician, you're bad. And I hope that shifts one day. I really do, you know, and again, that's another reason why people don't get into politics because of the, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Because of the way they're portrayed, nobody wants that. Who wants to take that on? Who wants to take on extra crap, really, like outside of it um, mm -hmm. to for, for that? How how do we improve that? I mean, you mentioned early on that we need to get more women in politics. And I think to your point, having um, having better people in politics, uh, and yes. don't get me wrong, we have some great people in politics now, uh, certainly in BC, but I, I, I think it's the, the atmosphere around all of it. Um, there's just such a distrust. Uh, there is. How, yep. how do we get to a place where we've got people there who can run and be supported and and get there and try to change the culture because it it sometimes feels that okay yeah we've got this culture that surrounds politics and it casts all politicians as in it for themselves and they're all crooked and they're all corrupt sure there's a segment of people who i think will always think that but you also have some of it that really does feel it's being gamed to 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 stoke anger for political advantage i'm thinking a lot about kind of the federal conservatives just as an example um who look i understand that um pierre polyev wants to become the next prime minister and he wants to win i totally get it politics is a zero-sum game you've either lost or you've won but mm -hmm. um some of the way that it does seem that that him and the federal conservatives do try to stoke up or gin up fear and anger feels like it just kind of adds to this overall sentiment of, well, they're all crooked. They're all corrupt. I'm not going to support any of them. So in some ways it's, it's disincentivizing uh, engagement and voting. Oh, for sure. And I've had people when I was at the door saying, I'm not going to vote. You know, I, mm. I don't like any of you. And I was like, okay, fair enough. That's your choice. Um, but I think it's not an overnight fix. You know, we have, we have people in there that are career politicians that are sitting there for their pensions. And I don't mean that in a mean way, but it's it's true, you know. I I also see the money that they dumped in to add those extra seats into the BC legislature. Yep. And then it's like, why, you know, you and I are having a Zoom meeting right now. So why can't MLA zoom in? You know, mm -hmm. why do why are we paying this money to have them sit in the BC legislature? Now this is my personal view. Mm -hmm. Um but I I think you would get, you know, more women, more moms, if they had that flexibility surrounding it, maybe they would get back, like they would put their, they would try it out, they would, 
maybe consider it. I think also too is I don't know how you can manage this online stuff that happens. You know, it's just, it's a free for all now and mm. anyone can say anything without any repercussions. Mm. Um, so you can't take that away. I, the only suggestion I'd have for women who, who really don't want to have that is have someone else manage your social media while you're running. Yeah, that would actually, that whenever I've run a campaign, um, I, I always, uh, from every candidate who I've managed, I always take control. Like one of my conditions of being their campaign manager is that I take control of their social media away from them so that they don't it's have very it to smart. look at. Um, and yeah. it's, it's always like my top line condition. Um, and I, I have a, I don't know if we call it a writer or something, but I have something that says, if you engage in social media without talking to me, um, I'm, my contract is voided and I'm, and I'm gone because I, I do it for several reasons. Number one, to protect the campaign to uh, number, mm -hmm. number two, to protect the candidate, but number three, also to ensure that the candidate is not going down the rabbit hole of comments and getting sucked in and getting pulled off message because a lot of what this stuff does is intentionally done by people who are operating mm -hmm. from different political parties to try to pull people off message, to try to make people angry. And I know that because I've seen it done. And I know it because I've been in the rooms where this stuff has been planned. <laughs> so it's, it, this, oh, wow. is, th this is just how this political world is. So I, perhaps I'm a bit jaded because I've been behind the scenes and seen some of how this, uh, the stuff and how it's done. But um, yeah, I think you're right. I think we, we, we need to find ways through this new world of, of virtual engagement. You know, if you're, if you're someone who is, for example, and this is just an example off the top of my head and it's certainly not ubiquitous, but if you're someone up in the Peace River region who's disabled and you want to represent your community, it's really hard to get down to Victoria. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's not going to be easy if you're up in the peace region. So you should be able to have access to, uh, 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 you know, a virtual, a virtual method to engage with, or, or what if you're blind or what if you're hard of hearing? Like, I'm, again, I'm not trying to single those out, but there are underrepresented people in the legislature. We, that, that's just a fact. If you just look, you can see, well, there's, there's people there who are underrepresented or unrepresented. Um, the way to bring those folks in is to ensure that the access is broadened. Uh, and I think it should be easier than just expecting people to be in a seat in a building in Victoria. I agree. I couldn't agree with you more. Elena, we're almost out of time. I can't believe it. The, the, the time flies and we're having fun. Um, did you want to leave us with any kind of final thoughts about your experience running for election and, and what you see kind of in the next year coming up for BC? I know, as you said, we're coming to an election at the end of the, well, actually probably in about 10 months, maybe we'll see what happens. Um, do you have any thoughts into kind of what we're heading into? Um, I, I don't, <laughs> it's going to be an interesting year. That's all I can say. Um, yeah. What's your prediction? I'm, do you think we'll, do you think uh, David DB will call an election for the spring or do you think he'll wait for October? I actually think he'll wait. I do think he'll wait, you know, um, with, with his new baby on the way and stuff like that. I do think he will wait. Um, but I am a bit concerned that there could be a bit of a uh, vote split and, mm. and, um, and that could change the course of things. Right. So yeah. Um, I guess we'll just have to wait until something's called and, and see how the cards lay. But I, I do, I just go out and vote. 
That's all I can say. Don't sit at home, get out and vote, uh, do your research, understand it. Don't just listen to your friend or your parents, do your own research and get out there and vote. If, uh, if, if you could ask one question, uh, or let me phrase this another way. If you could have one party commit, or sorry, if you could have all the parties commit to one deliverable, what would it be? Oh, I think bettering our healthcare. Um, I, that's, that's huge. You know, I've, I was in there with my son, uh, my younger son who has severe asthma and it was going to be a 12 hour wait, you know, oh and my it's gosh, like 12 hours. Yeah. Asthma? Yeah, oh. and, yeah, but it, I think it just ends up being, you know, he's better off at home. So we left, you know, and, and it's, I just, the healthcare system has crumbled before I said it's crumbling. Our healthcare system has crumbled and we really need to push forward and, and fix it like enough pointing the fingers. This goes across the party line, like no yeah. more finger pointing. Let's just find a solution people are dying like let's fix this i um uh, i know i said we're, we're wrapping up but you you mentioned the healthcare thing and and i just i look at what's happening right now especially with cancer in bc mm-hmm. and it mm-hmm. breaks my heart so um i lost my dad to lung cancer in um geez that would have been 2007 um Sorry. and he was 51 and then just maybe what, what are we at i think it was maybe 10 years later or just shy of 10 years later, my grandma of um, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And then an intervening period, intervening period I almost lost my mom um, to, to cancer as well, uh, colorectal cancer. And, you know, all of them were given much more time than they would have previously gotten because at the time the healthcare system was responsive to what they needed. So my dad, you know, the, he got in for chemo radiation. Um, he got like, the diagnosis and everything within a few weeks um he was in my grandmother same thing my mom same thing and when i see that there are patients who are dying just waiting for a diagnosis or yes. that you know there was a a story recently about um a mom who i think had gone 2 years without getting any kind of treatment cuz she was waiting for um a determination of the kind of treatment she was supposed to have or, or something like that i i just there are people losing their family members because we have a, a system that has crumbled and there's no action being taken on it. And I just no. can't for the life of me understand why. I, I don't either. So personally, I, I actually have Lynch syndrome. Mm. And so that is um, a genetic marker that's been found through BC cancer. So my chances of cancer are higher than the average person. It's about double. Mm. So I have to go for tests regularly. I've been waiting on a wait list for over three years for a hysterectomy. Oh, Elena. And I'm still waiting. So I was initially supposed to have it done in Vancouver. I had everything set and they canceled four days before. So I had respite for the boys. I had a hotel booked. I had everything booked and they canceled four days before. And so now I've transferred over to Victoria and I'm still waiting for my date. Now that means, yeah. And I have to do biopsies every six months to ensure that there are, there's nothing. I'm there. so sorry. That's awful. Well, and, but it is, and you know, I'm, I'm, it's, 
I'm lucky to in in some words because at least I'm getting screened every six months, right? Yeah. And there's people yeah. that aren't and and they're like they're not getting the help. But it's just yeah, it's horrible. It's really, really scary to think that um something actually that I I actually had a something got missed. Um I had a a biopsy done and it was in Vancouver and there was abnormal cells and I was never told about it. It oh wasn't gosh. until um, my doctor here found it. Sorry if you can hear that. Um, it wasn't until my doctor here mentioned it and huh. they um, they flagged it. But luckily I had another one after that, which showed clear. That that just has to be so stressful for you. Not like on top of dealing with the, the challenges of a family that, that are working in the autism system. Uh, also having this added burden. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, you know, and I just, I would so love to see optimistic it. regardless. You're like the most <laughs> optimistic, outgoing, happy person I think I've ever met, like sunshine over every fucking hill for you. And I just think that <laughs> Thanks, that's, Ryan. I just think that that's awesome. I mean, you are powerful. And it's, I think that's why I gravitated so much when we first met. I was just like, here is a fucking fierce woman who's got, like, she gives no shits about what people think about her. She's doing her thing. And I just love yeah. that. I think it's awesome. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate you. I appreciate you too. And thank you for, for joining me today to have this chat. I hope we can connect again soon. Um, talk more things on the podcast. And uh, you and me should just go for a coffee sometime soon. I think that I think we're overdue for just a, a casual chit chat. I agree. Thanks so much. I, agree. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening once again to the Ryan Painter podcast. I so appreciate you being here. Please head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. Let folks know how you feel about the show. Leave me a written review as well. And if you want to contact me, you can do so. My email is ryan at ryanpainter.ca. Again, that's ryan at ryanpainter.ca. And thanks again so much for tuning in. We look forward to having you on the next show. Take care.